One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush and Alva Ray to discuss the new support bubbles and you ask us, can there be an overreaction of removing statues? So there's been some further easing of England's lockdown restrictions announced, which are aimed at reducing loneliness for people who have been living on their own throughout this lockdown. So that basically comes in the form of something known as a support bubble, which is from Saturday in England. People who are living alone can form an exclusive support bubble with one other household. And that second household can have as many people in it as as you like. So basically, you can't mash two households of more than one people together, but you can have an individual added to one household of any number of people. And that means that they can visit each other's houses and go inside and they don't have to stay two metres apart and they can stay overnight. So the people who this most benefits are those who have, have been stuck on their own throughout this time. But in terms of sort of partners who have been separate for this time, unless one of them lives on their own, then you'd still technically be breaking the rules if you went from your shared house to go and stay at your partner's shared house. I think my favourite take on this was um, a tweet from Vicky Young, the BBC's chief political correspondent, who said yesterday there's quite a divide on Twitter between those who think the new guidelines are all about grandparents and those who think it's all about sex. Yeah, sorry, I completely looked at that through the um, latter thing. I do have friends who have been um, deprived (laughs) of of sex throughout this lockdown who have been uh, (laughs) analysing this new rule very closely. Two of my friends who are single who live together have come to the conclusion that they can choose one man to have around to their house that they can both have sex with. <laughs> but they have very different types, so they've been debating. That would be a very unusual hinge profile. <laughs> well, as long as there's a cooling off period, though, right, that shouldn't be a problem. Right, provided they observe a seven-day quarantine, one of them can choose the man. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's odd. The fascinating thing, I think, about this loosening that's happening in England around bubbles is as exactly as Vicky says, right, then everyone kind of sees it through the prism of of themselves. And then obviously I don't live alone, but my mum does. And therefore, obviously, of course, I am a little bit worried about her. And so I think it's like very positive that, you know, I, you know, will get to see her. Mm. So she, you know, sees another person. Obviously, if I were living in a house of multiple occupation, unable to you know get myself some treatment typo (laughs) I would probably feel quite differently about it I think the interesting thing is is that when people talk about it being confusing I think there's two elements at work one I think a lot of the time people say confusing but what they mean is I would like these rules to benefit me but the second is is isn't because the government's been quite bad at explaining the 
science throughout the whole process, right? Like the, the rationale is basically to try and maximize the number of people for whom there are particular mental health costs to the lockdown. Now, obviously, there are mental health costs to the lockdown for basically almost everyone, but they are particularly acute if you have caregiving responsibilities for a child you raise on your own, if you live alone and therefore have no kind of physical or normal human contact. And then also, you know, ultimately, actually, you know, if, if you can't get your end away, then that is is difficult too. The thing I think is kind of fascinating about it is that part of the other reason for the confusion was the government was clearly so keen to make it a big announcement for their people. Now, of course, an announcement for their people would be like, grandparents, go forth and hug your children, which is actually very much isn't, right? This is only really useful if you are the sole solitary grandparent. And actually for a lot of people I know, this in many ways is, yeah, one of the slight difficulties is what, what do you do if your dad is alive and bereaved and her mom is alive and lives alone? And I don't, I guess they both have to be bereaved for my maths to work. So I'd be after, or I guess the mom could be like, well, you're from a single parent family, right? But who do you pick? To I mean, in practice, of course, none of these restrictions, none of these edge cases can be enforced, right? If I go over to my, you know, my my new girlfriend in a house of multiple occupation, this is a, a hypothetical scenario. Busted. <laughs> then, um, yeah, like before, like my aunt who listens to the podcast phones to ask me why I'm not keeping her updated. Yeah, like um, if, I, if, if I go over for like, you know, a quick shag, the police can't prove I'm not simply testing the strength of the relationship to use Jennifer Harris's thing. So there are actually quite a lot of extra freedoms and I think in practice people I think in practice some people will go I just do not trust the government and think they're unlocking too fast and will not take advantage of any of these freedoms some people will go I think this is going to end in catastrophe so I'm going to take the advantage of these freedoms before they're taken away and some people will push them a bit and I kind of think then this is actually one of the few things where I think they have got the balance about right yeah I think I think that's fair as well it's also it's less about the actual technicalities of of the restriction it's more about getting people used to the idea that it's going to be a very long time before we we can safely or legally meet loads of people from different households and all be inside the same house together and merge and mix in in these huge groups so i think it's kind of it's almost like a psychological preparation isn't it like all of this stuff has been yeah, I, I would wonder if actually maybe this change should have been brought in before groups of six of up to six people could meet outdoors um, at a social distance, just in terms of, I suppose it depends on whether the aim is to, to help people stick to lockdown while, while making it less difficult, or whether the aim is to slowly help people adjust to being out and about more to get the economy moving because I think if it's the first one and you're kind of still trying to maintain a kind of lockdown I think that these bubbles seem more like the the next logical step than six people from as many households as you want meeting outdoors at a social distance because I I know that the crucial difference is the difference between outdoors and indoors but I, I do think that maybe for some people once you're able to meet anyone at a distance of two meters outdoors or in someone's back garden, I think maybe some of the some of the psychological restrictions or barriers that you put up around staying away from people and staying in your household are kind of eased. And and I, I think that 
it's so anathema to people to have someone run to their back garden, but to not offer them a, a cup of tea or a glass of wine or the idea that that person shouldn't really come in to use the bathroom is also a bit unnatural and a bit strange. And I would just imagine this like totally just anecdotal and me pretending to be a behavioral scientist, but I just imagine that people find those sorts of things kind of silly and, and don't necessarily adhere to them very well. So I would imagine that with, with, with groups of up to six people meeting outdoors, some people moved indoors, some people would maybe have been exchanging food or exchanging drinks, and you're not really meant to pass objects between each other if you're doing that. And in lots of ways, even if you're still sort of staying outdoors and sort of doing the two meter distance, that has probably involved much more mixing than basically adding an individual to a household while maintaining lockdown would do. Yeah. And you did a piece recently, didn't you, with one of our data team, uh, Niku, about whether or not there's been a sort of Dominic Cummings effect on people's adherence to the lockdown rules. Is this latest restriction from from the research that you were doing, do you think it's sort of a concession to a public that's growing restive with lockdown? Or is it a sort of coaxing of the public to do a little bit more because they've been too obedient during lockdown? Yeah, well, so that piece was a funny one. I mean, it was a response to, I think, a very, a very real interest in whether Dominic Cummings basically breaking the lockdown rules to go to Durham and to Barnard Castle, whether that would have had an impact on lockdown compliance. But basically, the data around that would never be able to prove it either way, because people are allowed to go to parks and are allowed to drive. And, and, you know, people are allowed to be more mobile, especially as lockdown restrictions have been eased. So there's definitely been a spike in mobility. And a lot of that is, you know, it, it could all arguably be within the bounds of the lockdown and the regulations that people were because the the main spikes have been in pedestrian mobility and in car usage and like that that could all be entirely within the bounds of of the law so definitely people are moving around more but those statistics don't really give any indication as to whether people are mixing more with people from outside of their households or going places that they shouldn't be going because I, I, I'm always stuck between whether or not I'm in my own bubble of thinking that people are growing frustrated and bending the rules because, you know, perhaps people our age are in more of a scenario where they want to socialise and also feel a little bit safer in the face of the virus. And the rest of the country is is almost, you know, overcautious. I think actually the better indication rather than the mobility data that is, is actually just the surveys and the polling where people do say that they are more likely slightly to, to break lockdown rules. Mm-hmm. And within the chunk of people who say they're more likely to break lockdown rules, some of them do cite Dominic Cummings as a reason for that. Right. So I think, yeah, probably people report that they are growing restless of it. It's just in terms of... You, you can't really prove whether people moving around, whether they're doing it in a legitimate way or not. But I, yeah, I also think that anecdotally, probably some people are having a very, very difficult time adhering to the lockdown perfectly. And lots of other people probably haven't been. Similarly, yeah, from the deeply unscientific metric of the window I'm currently looking out of on my estate, there are a couple of reasons why I think it has been fraying for a long time. The first is, I'm just going to casually libel the people in the posh houses opposite. I'm convinced (laughs) that at the start of the lockdown, someone who lives opposite this estate was phoning the police every time they thought someone was breaking lockdown, which 
bluntly in practice basically meant that after one like person like of any particular ethnic group like broadly right there are kind of like three archetypes of men who leave this this block to go to the shop there's mixed race people like me who mostly have been because you know who's going to bother to get properly dressed to go to the shop at the end of the road have been wearing like some jeans and a hoodie hipster slash kurdish diaspora yeah like beardy kind of tanned maybe they've holidayed well maybe they're kurdish wearing a hoodie and then like properly black people wearing a hoodie the three genders of this estate and (laughs) i am convinced that what was happening at the start was that someone opposite whenever like someone in one of those three broad archetypes had left the house more than once was like oh that's probably the same person probably breaking lockdown and like the police would turn up they would have like a bit of a wander round it's a very small estate so their wonder wouldn't be very long they would yeah they'd kind of like you know make conversation with anyone who happened to be like taking the recycling out at the same time and then they would like go away now there are a couple of possible reasons why that has stopped the first is is maybe whoever it has done it because i mean definitely and the one time that i spoke to one of the police officers they were clearly quite annoyed at the fact this calling was clear yeah then like there was there was clearly a problem of this person wasting police time so it may be that they've stopped because eventually like they did it enough times and the police did go if you do it again you're getting charged for wasting police time please knock it off or equally it could be that they themselves have got tired of lockdown and the weird thing is is since whoever it is has been doing this has stopped doing it the teenagers on the estate have like gone from you know, one of the kind of like most heartbreaking but sweetest love stories ever told is is watching like two people in I think their mid-teens. Obviously, people in their mid-teens flirt badly, but like flirting badly at a two meter distance. Mm. And they've gradually over the course of the lockdown got closer and closer. I don't think they've yet violated the Who's one meter guidance, but they are definitely where Tory MPs would like the lockdown rules to be in terms of distance together. And I just think all of that kind of stuff, right, just like the pattern of kind of suggests to me that no one is breaking, breaking the rules, but everyone is kind of like starting to push them. Like the the only day one lockdown thing that still feels really in force on the estate is that every adult has stopped using the nice green bit in the middle so that the kids can, can use it more easily. But other than that, the only difference is you don't see strangers coming to visit. So that was a very long-winded way of saying, I think that lockdown fatigue is a real thing. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. After so many years of not caring enough about, for example, slavery, would caring too much, in inverted commas, for a bit and taking down some statues that might be defensible be the worst thing in the world? Maybe they can go back up when racism is fixed. That's our question this week. And actually, the question does reference some tweets that you had sent, Stephen, about statues of Gladstone. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit confused by this question because actually, if you Google on the NS website, ah, I wanted to, well, I wanted to take down statues of Gladstone before it was cool. Well, a specific statue of Gladstone, which I've kind of sort of come round to the idea and some other people from that part of Bow where I grew up both said, why don't we just put another... So there's a statue of Gladstone that is regularly, its hands are regularly painted red to symbolise blood because the statue was funded by the match industry and... The women who, predominantly the women who worked in it, you know, suffered from the phosphorus poisoning. The Liberal government didn't do very much about it. And there is a, a well-established idea locally that the, going some way back, right, you know, that the statue was paid for by docking it from the wages of, of the match girls in question. So I, I'm, yeah, I, I guess so it's one of these where I'm slightly confused as, as to where this question has, has come from. I kind of think, right, the thing is, isn't like, so broadly, my position is, isn't I think it's better to talk about putting statues up and what we want to do in the public space rather than taking them down. Because on a taking statues down thing, you end up having like an exhausting row over every single one. And in the end, really, all you've done is take down a statue. Mm. I, I guess this is kind of the other thing. Like ultimately, like, yeah, to refer back to part one. A tangible improvement in my lived experience is the person in the posh houses not mistaking me for someone else on the estate where I'm trying to buy milk during lockdown. Mm. And I am yet to see a coherent theory of change that is based around the idea that a statue's presence or non-presence is particularly important one way or the other. The reason why I am pro things like the Coulson statue getting taken down is there are a lot of great people in Bristol. There are a lot of great black people in Bristol who don't have statues do we really need someone whose like sole achievement was sold a bunch of people gave some money back to his hometown I think if you were to do a list of the top 100 Bristolians you you would you would struggle to make space for that dude and and that kind of just feels to me like a a, a more useful way of looking at it but also right ultimately that is solely about honoring those people I'm not convinced that any of Bristol's deep problems you know it's one of the the most segregated of England's great cities I'm not really convinced that the statue's presence one way or the other is going to change that but it would at least give an opportunity to give Paul Stevenson a statue of his own in Bristol while he's still alive which I think would be a positive thing yeah and and that's always the argument isn't it when when the statue debates roll around is well 
where does it stop? You know, the slippery slope argument of, of are you going to remove every statue of someone who has a problematic past? And Alva, you've actually been doing reporting into the return of the roads must fall case in Oxford, haven't you? Mm-hmm. I've been writing it up today. It should hopefully be up by the time this podcast is out. Um, I interviewed two of the um, original um, founders of the roads must fall in Oxford movement. Because I was saying on the podcast last time that my experience of being at the university at the time of that movement was just the the depth of thinking and the intelligence of those activists and and the and the way in which I didn't feel like their arguments were necessarily reflected in very good faith at the time and that they weren't as individuals treated very well in some parts of the press and um, which did some quite like nasty hit pieces on some of the individual students. I had just two really, really interesting conversations, which I hope people of all different views on this subject will find really insightful because I don't think that I've really seen the the full extent of their argument around why the road statue should come down reflected in very many places. And I mean, I suppose they're, they, they're only speaking to the sp- specific case of the, the statue of Cecil Rhodes on the front of Oriel College in Oxford and their movement. But I think that it, they do speak really pertinently to the big wider debate around statues and stuff. I think that, you know, because I asked one of them, you know, if they worried that the debate around the statue was dwarfing a wider conversation around representation at the university or the other things that they had wanted to raise, like diversifying the curriculum and so on. I think that's been an argument made more generally about the Colston statue and the the discourse at the moment around statues in Britain, that maybe that's happening at the expense of other issues. And I think what was really interesting was that they just totally rejected that, that like it was a, a really strategic decision in the case of Roads Must Fall. Like the way they put it was that they were trying to leverage a wide range of conversations and centre them around one icon. So the debate was centred around a statue, but by doing so, other issues around race and Oxford were made more prominent but that at the same time they think that the statue itself it didn't just sort of doesn't just represent a number of of other reforms that are needed but that that the statue in itself well is in their words abhorrent they sort of argue that it's a a litmus test for for Oxford University that that, that it's very easy to pay lip service to making black students feel more welcome at that university and to be engaging properly with those issues but then like again like in their words they said the litmus test was you know whether you believe a white supremacist statue should be up in Oxford or not it's the test of that lip service Mm. yeah and 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 that idea of you know just focusing on one statue or a handful of statues dwarfing certain debates I think that statues are really useful stepping stone for conversations not just about systemic racism at whatever institution or in whatever city but about public space so going back to what Stephen was saying about what could you actually put on these plinths instead like which people should be memorialized where and public space in terms of museums as well so that statue in Tower Hamlets that was very swiftly removed of Robert Milligan the the slave trader outside the Docklands Museum which is a very good museum that's really interesting because then that then sparks some conversation about why there are so few museums in the UK that actually address our history of the transatlantic slave trade. And actually, last year, I did a piece about the fact that 
we only have one museum in the UK that actually addresses our, our history of migration, which is actually at the moment in Lewisham Shopping Centre because it could never find a permanent location for it. Whereas other countries, particularly other European countries, do have their dedicated immigration museums. And so I think that's sort of not a debate even, just that that addressing that problem with our public space and our public institutions and our educational institutions is a really useful, probably more productive conversation to have even than bringing statues down. Because, you know, the reason why perhaps we're so oblivious and the general public doesn't really understand the significance of all of these figures who, who are suddenly being highlighted is because we don't know our history that well. And, you know, you can have a whole conversation about what's on the curriculum, but also what about those more accessible sort of centres of education where you get, if you're, you know, school kid in London, you get taken on a, on a school trip there, for example, the, the Docklands Museum or anywhere else in the country. And we've done quite a bit of reporting. Our former colleague, Patrick Maguire, did, did some of this about the loss of museums in, particularly in areas outside of, of London. I think that's an important focus as well on the way that austerity has affected how many places there are that you can go to for free or cheaply to learn about local history or national history. Yeah, I think the thing which I'm still trying to work out my view on, right, is I feel like, you know, at the start of this, this of these protests, when I think we all kind of assumed that it, it would probably not still be the, the kind of a major topic of conversation however many weeks on, one of the things that I said I was concerned about was the protests which take as their inspiration an event in the US very quickly end up in this kind, what I feared would be a fruitless position of going, well, it's a very different country and look how much worse things are over there, right? And so you just end up debating this impossibly and pointlessly high bar. The thing I found fascinating, not just in the UK, but like across kind of the Western world, is that so in France, right, which has a developed and sophisticated and or and pre-existing grassroots organisations, charitable organisations, NGOs campaigning against deaths in custody, police violence, where, you know, the, the death toll is a lot higher, although obviously that is partly because of one of the big achievements of British policy, which is the police mostly aren't armed. But, you know, there's been an organised movement for ages, uh, working really hard, struggling to get very much progress. And then these protests have triggered the end of the chokehold as a form of restraint in France, which is hugely positive, but it's kind of fascinating to me because if someone had just told me the various protests about police violence that would happen in France, and someone said, which one of these do you think will successfully get the chokehold banned? I would not have guessed that it would be one triggered by a horrific killing in, in the United States. And the fascinating thing with the statue stuff, right, is the thing we don't know is... Yeah, as I said, I'm sceptical about the theory of change. I'm very positive change, uh, ch about changes in the public sphere because I like art. Mm. But I'm not going to pretend that I think that my preference for us having new and beautiful sculptures, new and beautiful statues, commissioning artists to do interesting things with public space. I'm not going to pretend that I think that there is a, a line between me liking art and supporting effective anti-racist initiatives. I, I'm not convinced there is a line can be drawn between those two things but the thing I am curious about is to what extent do the success of these protests show them weirdly if you start with because in a way the conversation's kind of been well we're not as bad as the US and then someone goes well if we're not as bad as the US why do we do this terrible thing mm. and everyone goes oh yeah we probably should and it, it just 
it's just interesting to me. And I'm not going to pretend I know remotely what, what the answer is. But if any of these changes are particularly enduring, right, you know, if in 10 years time, well, I think the chokehold is unlikely to come back. But yeah, if in 10 years time in France, the chokehold has gone and here there has been a series of tangible follow ons from this, then that, I think, would slightly change how I thought about it. Because I think in some ways, right, the the, the value of, of the statue stuff in Oxford has been that it has created space for people to be more reasonable in going, isn't it a bit weird that, like, the English syllabus basically ends in 1900, right? It, it's created space for that kind of thing. And in some ways, the unknown thing is, does the statue stuff create space or does it just create opportunities for people like me to talk about how much we like Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. Our producer is Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.